Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at The Garden of Proserpine by Algernon Charles Swinburne. You don't know how many times I tried saying his name properly before I before I got it right. I kept on saying Charles Algernon. It's just, I can't quite get to the, the Algernon is just one hell of a name, isn't it? It's one hell of a name. And it won't be surprising that this is a person that went to Eton and, um, and, and, and Balliol College in, in Oxford during, um, during his formative years in the first half of the 19th century. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Just wanted to say thank you to Megan, who suggested this poem via Twitter. She asked if I do requests and I don't really do. I've not done requests anyway, but she threw this poem out there and I and I thought, you know what, I have not read this poem and I don't know much about this poet. So there's something just to hold there in, in, in my in, just in my back pocket for one week. And here we are. Here we are looking at that poem right now. So thank you. Thank you to Megan, who has the amazing I can't remember her, her, her actual Twitter um, address, but I do know that the name, her displayed name is Mumbo Italiano on twitter which is a wonderful wonderful name so she she suggested this poem and i had a good look at it and i i uh really really enjoyed it in the end actually and i um i i, I think um i've been looking at a lot of victorian poets already and you might know a few weeks ago we looked at goblin market by christina rossetti and this is a poet who's part of that circle of artists um, especially the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So Charles uh, Algernon Charles Swinburne, you see, I keep trying to call him Charles Algernon because it just sounds sounds a bit normal, but not very normal. But Algie, as we'll call him, or Algernon, or A.C. Swinburne is probably the easiest way of putting it. He was, his, um, I think his father was a very rich family in Northumbria, educated in Eton, and then he went to Balliol College in Oxford. He never got his degree I think he took a bit, he got in trouble for, um, I think he supported the assassination of Napoleon the third or something. Anyway, so he, he got into trouble at, at, at the university, uh, took a year out, came back, but never finished his studies. So he was, he was, he was associated. He met, he met the Rossetti brothers, um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti and, um, the other one. <laughs> at Oxford and he sort of held on to that acquaintance and spent a lot of time in London with those pre-Raphaelite brotherhood chaps so I guess um Christina would have been part of that group as well obviously so we looked at Goblin Market and we that was an interesting poem wasn't it and if you haven't listened to that podcast episode go back and listen to it because um people seem to really enjoy it so sounds like it was a good one i never know until i hear back from people so hopefully this will be a good one as well um he um so yeah he was what else can we say i mean christina rossetti we spoke about how she was sort of a muse for some of the pre-raphaelite brotherhood painters uh, but sort of, but she got very ill and her physical appearance changed quite dramatically and so her attitude and some of her ideas and the, the way that she explored the world also changed as well. Now, Swinburne was also someone who was quite physically distinctive as well. It's meant to be that he was a very short gentleman. He was very frail and he had quite a large head as well. And he suffered many ailments too. He, 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 was, he frequently had seizures and probably thought to be epilepsy looking back now. But no one can be too sure about that. And 
he uh, he got to writing his poems, and then when he was still a relatively young man, he had a bit of a hit on his hands. So he wrote a, a book called Poems and Ballads, uh, Poems and Ballads, which this poem, The Garden of Proserpine, is from. That was my creaky chair, and he 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 gained a lot of fame and notoriety right off the bat um, for a few reasons. The, the book ultimately it was it was a double whammy of blasphemous poetry um as well as quite let's just say poetry that had quite sadomasochistic elements about it as well so it's all very sinful now this all took place of course victorian era we know is synonymous with the crisis of faith and so the crisis of faith is very much associated with growing secularism now and and i guess the industrialization of the world as well and, and just for change for change of how religion functions within the changing world obviously within science there was geology showing that the world was perhaps a lot older than well not perhaps definitely a lot older than it is stated in the bible and then the, the we had the extra blow of the releasing of papers by by charles darwin and alfred russell wallace on this brand spanking new theory of evolution and natural selection which showed that we weren't these favoured creatures of light that were created by God 6,000 years ago somewhere around Palestine I guess we were we were evolved we were part of a tree of life we were we were a, just a, a little branch in a big vast tree of animals and creatures most of whom are now dead or extinct but we were just part of that whole web of life there was nothing much like the copernican revolution which showed that the earth uh, the sun did not go around the earth we now had this revolution where the human very much is not the center of existence either from a scientific standpoint or a biological or a naturalistic standpoint at least and of course now i'm, I'm not sure uh, this probably would have been before nietzsche was publishing his works but i still think there's that mindset that zeitgeist you know that the people were challenging the idea of god also and i think this is relevant for the poem that we're about to look at even though some of the ancient texts had been rediscovered from the renaissance onwards the victorian times definitely showed that there was a the victorians were very i mean obviously before the victorians you know the romantics and the um and the neoclassical poets the augustans were also very fond of the classics of of, of greek and roman classical literature and ideas but during victorian times i think as as the uh, as the grip that the uh the, the judeo-christian god you know the abrahamic god had perhaps and in, in in europe at least in western europe it was loosening and that 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 had some interesting effects no we it's not so much that everyone became a bunch of little rationalists right away and just immediately believed in science there was very much a renegotiation of faith and part of that in Victorian times was the rise of the interest in the uncanny and the supernatural and the rise of seances and obviously famously Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and a bunch of others very much into the idea of communicating with the dead, that the dead weren't in, in heaven. They were sort of spirits that were sort of somewhere between the world of the dead and the world of the living, sort of trapped in this, in this trapped between realities and so there was that so there was definitely people were i mean as um 
as as perhaps it was it ck chesterton is famously said if people stop believing in god uh they'll believe in anything and i think the victorians certainly were an illustration of that that they believed in lots of wacky you know not believing in god did not suddenly stop people believing in in lots of crazy wacky stuff people if anything <laughs> they started believing in crazier wackier stuff so part of that was that sort of the ideas of the occult and mediums and seances and the other side of it was actually a wish to return to the old gods to the old pagan gods and this was still quite controversial. So one of the poems from Swinburne's um, anthology, Ballads, Poems and Ballads, or Ballads and Poems, I forget what it is already, published in 1966, 1866 even. One of them, the, which is a sort of sister piece to this poem, the hymn to Proserpine is very much that, a sort of a hymn to the, to the goddess of death herself. Um, that he wanted to, you know, to, to sort of, he wanted a, he, 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 he lamented the loss of the old gods and the rise of Christianity. And it was almost a plea, a hymn for the old gods to, now that he was casting Christianity aside, a, a plea for them to accept his belief, to accept his offerings once again. Although, much like this poem, The Garden of Proserpine, the difference is, right, is that the poem was about, the, the 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 welcoming of death the denial of an afterlife and the welcoming of death so yeah that sums up that proserpine is the the greek of uh, a roman name for persephone um who's the wife of hades who when she became married to hades regretted that she had to leave her home on earth to, to, to basically knock about with the dead who I've no idea how cheerful the dead are. They might be really good company for all I know. So she, she was hanging out with the dead instead. And, um, he, um, and, and so she was allowed to return and that's how the seasons basically happened. So that when she returned to the world of the living, spring would happen. So she was allowed home for six months a year and spring would happen. And then when she went back to the underworld, everything would die again. So that's sort of the mythological idea of it. Also, there's the mythological idea that um, she had a garden. She was allowed to have a garden in Hades, which is this forgetful world of the dead. And... And the dead were sort of they didn't really they 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 didn't much like the ghosts I guess that we see in in the ideas of the occult that the ghosts don't always know they're ghosts they don't always know they're dead they're sort of lost mentally as well as physically and so part of that is that they she had poppies in her garden and it's meant to be that holding these poppies or sniffing these poppies would make you forget and in the end they would just become these empty drifting souls who would then sort of drop the poppies as well as they let go of the world more and more and drifted into forgetfulness so that's some good background for the poem just a, a little bit more about his life so it was a bit of a wild one as I said, sadomasochistic elements were were noticed in his in these poems, and were, and it was quite much very scandalous. Thing, you know, he was very much scandalised because of it. Um, but he was a man who liked who liked he he got a, he was um, I forget the ten, I know there's sadomasochism, but I forget the actual term from deriving sensual and sexual pleasure from pain. But he he was a bit like that, and he liked to be flogged as well. He was a naughty boy, and he liked to drink. And he liked a few other things. And so when he was in his 40s, I think it got to the point where he was completely out of control. Um, he drank excessively. This is from the Poetry Foundation. 
page about him and was prone to accidents that often left him bruised, bloody or unconscious. So he was quite, again, he was quite a small, frail guy who had a, a large head. So maybe he wasn't the most coordinated of gentlemen. And uh, therefore, if you've had a skinful, uh, then it, perhaps it would make it you even more uncoordinated and he might be prone to accidents. So he had all of these problems. And then um, he was, in the end... Uh, he, he, I think he was removed to his parents' home where he recovered. Again, I'm reading from the Poetry Foundation page. And then in 1879, his friend and his literary agent, Theodore Watts Dunton, decided, nope, that's enough. I'm taking you to Putney, where he was gradually weaned from alcohol. Now, Dunton, Watts Dunton also took control of his finances and banned him from seeing his friends as well. So he was very much confined to Putney. I remember right, wasn't it Alexander Pope who was brought up in Putney? Putney seems to be this place of respite for uh, historical London-based poets. So he lived another another 30 years. So he died at the age of, of uh, in 1909 at the age of 72. He lived a long life. Now, his, the kind of poetry he wrote, now that he recovered from his debauched condition, he lived a much more comfortable life and he carried on writing poetry, but not, not so much on the S&M themes or the blasphemy, very much just about a communication with nature. He was part of an aestheticist school of, of cri art, critical thinking about art, which very much says it's just art for art's sake. It's not to serve particular propaganda. It is not to serve the church or anything like that. It's, it has no no ultimate societal aims it is simply about art that isn't afraid to explore wherever it wants to explore would be the the mindset behind it and he died at 72 now people didn't celebrate his people felt that his work diminished at the time in fact what people say of Theodore Watts Dunton is that he saved the man but killed the poet now People nowadays, there's more of an appreciation for his later work, but at the time, and maybe for, for many years after it, people wanted people liked the, uh, the the naughty Swinburne, and and not the the more chilled out, less alcoholic lover of nature Swinburne in his poetry. And I think that's about it. Oh yeah, just very quickly about Watts Dunton. So people, one thing was said about that that yeah, people. Uh, can still be a bit undecided where how exploitative that relationship was because Dunton Dunton was in charge of Swinburne's finances and so people felt that you know and he, he very much took a lot of control over his life but I think a lot of people say look Swinburne would be dead so and it seemed that he found value in the rest of his life because he carried on writing poetry and um, a lot of it we now see is quite good poetry. He's also a poet that people felt that even those who detracted from him, they, they still said that there was a brilliant, intense lyricism to his work and that he was a very talented poet. And he certainly had that good understanding of, of the music of language. And hopefully that will come through in this reading of a poem now. So I think that's enough background. I think you're, you're up to speed now. I think we're all ready for the poem. So let's read the poem. The Garden of Proserpine by Algernon Charles Swinburne Here where the world is quiet, Here where all trouble seems, Dead winds and spent waves riot In doubtful dreams of dreams, I watch the green field growing For reaping folk and sowing, For harvest time and mowing, A sleepy world of streams. I am tired of tears and laughter, And men that laugh and weep, 
of what may come hereafter for men that sow to reap. I am weary of days and hours, blown buds of barren flowers, desires and dreams and powers, and everything but sleep. Here life has death for neighbour, and far from eye or ear, one waves and wet winds labour, weak ships and spirits steer. They drive adrift and wither, they wot not who make thither, but no such winds blow hither and no such things grow here. No growth of moor or coppice, no heather-flower or vine, but bloomless buds of poppies, green grapes of proserpine, pale beds of blowing rushes, where no leaf blooms or blushes, save this whereout she crushes, for dead men deadly wine. Pale, without name or number, in fruitless fields of corn, they bow themselves and slumber all night till light is born, and like a soul belated, in heaven and heaven unmated, by cloud and mist abated, comes out of darkness morn. Though one were strong as seven, he too with death shall dwell, nor wake with wings in heaven, nor weep for pains in hell. Though one were fair as roses, his beauty clouds and closes, and well though love reposes, in the end it is not well. Pale beyond porch and portal, crowned with calm leaves she stands, who gathers all things mortal with cold immortal hands. Her languid lips are sleeper than loves who fears to greet her, to men that mix and meet her from many times and lands. She waits for each and other, she waits for all men born, forgets the earth her mother, the life of fruits and corn, and spring and seed and swallow take wing for her and follow, where summer song rings hollow, and flowers are put to scorn. There go the loves that wither, the old loves with wearier wings, and all dead years draw thither, and all disastrous things, dead dreams of days forsaken, blind buds that snows have shaken, wild leaves that winds have taken, red strays of ruined springs. We are not sure of sorrow, and joy was never sure, today will die tomorrow, time stoops for no man's lure, and love grown faint and fretful, with lips but half regretful, sighs and with eyes forgetful, weeps that no loves endure. From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, for no life lives forever, for dead men rise up never, for even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Then star nor sun shall waken, nor any change of light, nor sound of waters shaken, nor any sound or sight, nor wintry leaves, nor vernal, nor days, nor things diurnal, only the sleep eternal in an eternal night. So that was The Garden of Proserpine by Algernon Charles Swinburne. So we'll, we'll get back. After last week where we looked at, at Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons, in which we had no real argument to deal with in the poem. I don't think there was anyway. It's nice to be back on the back on the safe ground of a, of a poet actually having a point to make in their poem 
I'm really happy for Eva to tell the truth, but I, I quite like diminishing responsibility of finding my own meaning within this one. And there is a very specific meaning to this through which Swinburne has used the, the image of this garden in the underworld, this garden in Hades, to illustrate ultimately why it is a good thing to die and to not carry on and why according to Swinburne and this has been intimated in the hymn to Proserpine as well that he why it's it's fine it's it's fine to just die to fade away to actually just to sleep and not to dream just to sleep a chance to dream I know we got Shakespeare and Hamlet echoed in that phrase but it's fine just to just oblivion is fine it's great no more problems, no more worries. You sleep, you never wake, you don't dream. It's over. So, and, and he and he shows it to be, he demonstrates, well, he, he feels it's much more preferable than the idea of eternal life, be it an eternal bliss in heaven or eternal damnation in hell. So he, he starts off, we'll, we'll have a look at the meter and look at the style of the poem in a little moment but first let's just really get into these how many stanzas there's 12 stanzas and the argument is is pretty much delivered step by step within this poem so and it is an interesting sort of mixture between romantic ideas and neoclassical ideas as well he seems to blend it doesn't really strike me as a pre-modern poem it's more a sort of victorian poem that brings together two particular epochs i think in the way that imagery and verse was composed in those epochs so he begins with a description i guess of of what well, he describes the garden but actually it's more we have a speaker who doesn't quite know where the other where they are even and there's a sense of slight waking from forgetfulness in the first couple of stanzas um especially um where uh a sleepy world of streams but he also i mean in the so in the fourth line of the second stanza all the stanzas have eight lines here where all trouble seems dead winds and spent waves riot in doubtful dreams of dreams this sense of you know a dream within a dream within a dream this sense of not quite knowing what is what is real anymore of the memories of the person you you once were of a life you once had among the living becoming something as vague as a dream within a dream something that's slowly becoming it's gone from something a physical and immediate at the moment you're living within it to something that is without substance a sort of shadow in the mind a fading image something that is about to be forgotten and so the the, the idea of the will to sleep and the suggestion of these poppies, these poppies of forgetfulness that are uh, the only things that grow in the garden of Proserpine. The, the, the need for sleep is, is, is very much spoken about in the second stanza, which ultimately ends up being the, 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 the point of the very final stanza as well, which is I'm weary of days and hours, blown buds of barren flowers, desires and dreams and powers and everything but sleep. He really just wants to stop existing, this speaker um the third stanza so yeah he wants oblivion in the third stanza 
there's some interesting images here and I think it's good to pay a bit of attention to this one so let's read the stanza out again here life has death for neighbor and far from eye or ear one wives and wet one 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 wives who wants a one wife one waves and wet winds labor weak ships and spirits steer they drive adrift and wither they not not they what not who make thither but no such winds blow hither and no such things grow here now, apart from the, there's some quite lovely alliteration, isn't there? One waves and wet winds labour, weak ships and spirits steer. So ship spirits and steer and one waves and wet winds and weak. But the image is, and the language is quite dense here and quite, I mean, we know when we get to the, they drive, they drive adrift and wither, they what not, who make thither. But no such winds blow hither. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to rhyme hither and thither as well, isn't it? But, uh, but so... These are the souls washing up in the land of the dead. These are the souls washing up in Hades because, of course, they carried over those. I can't remember how there are quite a few rivers in Hades. There's a river of forgetfulness. But but uh, that's that's how you arrive in the underworld in classical mythology by water. So the souls that wash up are sort of shipwrecked and they already they are already sort of becoming forgetful. So they drive adrift and wither. They what not who make thither. What means no know to know something so and thither there thither i think is there but no but no such winds blow hither so yeah they're they're arriving via winds and sort of these but already these sort of one waves just and wet winds labor and weak ships and spirits steer so there's already this weakness this sort of lack of ferocity on the vessels and the rivers in which they arrive but then that's it now there's no winds there's none of this at all you're in the land of the dead now the next stanza talks about the poppies that that proserpine sort of grinds out for people to consume so uh and he talks about the things that don't grow and then the, the only things that do grow are bloomless buds of poppies green grapes of proserpine so these green grapes they're not really grapes they're just these buds of the poppies now opium is made from the seed pods of opium poppies so i don't know if he's blown these buds are actually the buds normally a bud is just that little green thing that becomes a leaf or becomes a flower but i don't know if he means buds also perhaps in these seed pods and i wonder if there's a very deliberate intimation of these seed pods and opium and how the effects of these poppies on these dead people is certainly quite similar to the effects of opium in the sense that they forget who they are they drift into further forgetfulness we know this about the legend and this seems to be what's happening here when uh so yes pale beds of glowing blowing rushes um where no leaf blooms or blushes save this whereabout she crushes for so sorry save this wear out she crushes for dead men deadly wines this is creating a kind of deadly wine from these buds of poppies and so um the next stanza stanza number five talks about this what kind of garden this is and it seems to be an eternally arrested spring and not even the kind of spring perhaps that is the glorious first flowers but almost just the first buds and that's it this first little surge and then that is sort of petrified and frozen forever so there's a sort of jo joylessness to it um yes so so yes this it also describes these people becoming mindless as well in the fifth stanza so 
They bow themselves and slumber all night till light is morn, and like a soul belated in hell and heaven unmated by cloud and mist abated comes out of darkness morn. These are people that are no longer living in any sense that they they are alive in the sense that they are perhaps conscious entities, but they've forgotten who they are and they're not quite existing fully within the world. Um so the next stanza points out that they're not in heaven or hell they're in Hades this is an older idea I think Sheol was the same so the the first descriptions of the underworld in the Old Testament the world of the dead as far as I know in the scriptures or the Old Testament there's not really much that the ideas of paradise aren't really there those are things that sort of ideas that came from Christianity there's not really a heaven or hell within Judaism or within the scriptures of the Old Testament. There is Sheol, which is just sort of, I mean, I think that hell, the term hell actually comes from Sheol. But again, it's just this world of the dead, this world of, 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 of the dead where we, you know, we wander into. And I think it's quite similar to Hades, Sheol, which is just this, this sort of, it's not quite hell. No one's getting pitchforks rammed up their bums or just set on fire, <laughs> having their skin eaten having little demons prod their eyes and really bad kind of catchy um 1980s holiday songs playing on the pa forever and repeats of top gear and people reading out biographies that that have been fished from supermarkets sort of autobiographies of people who were once contestants and reality tv shows that were all written by by sort of very very depressed ghost writers who could feel the sort of senselessness of every word that they were being paid to write as they listened to the void itself within the dictaphone confessions of these c-list d-list z-list non-entities that's one image of hell but this is more an image of hell this is just an afterlife where it's just life they are dead and with death, there's that, there's, 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 there's just a lack of vitality, a lack of vitality and forgetfulness. Stanza number eight and stanza number nine speak of the role of Proserpine, the role that she plays in making the dead forget, in being the goddess of death. And um, just, the, just the, the, the lack of, um, and then stanza number nine um speaks about again the things the old loves everything is 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 condemned for death and one line that tripped me up here so wild leaves that winds have taken red strays of ruined springs i wondered what the red strays of ruined springs were and that's because i thought of springs as like a spring of water and so i thought what are these springs and why is it red and i thought oh is this blood of a ruined springs, the sort of spring of blood, the red strays. Why is there blood here? It's not blood, it's leaves, isn't it? It's leaves. Again, it's this sort of spring doesn't turn into summer in this poem. Autumn doesn't happen. There is no harvest. There's a garden, but it produces nothing. And so, yes, red strays of ruined ruined springs. It's not ruined springs as in water. It's ruined springs as in the season, I think. Certainly not bed springs or something like that. Oh, if you listen to last week's poem, I wonder if um, springs a word of many meanings, isn't it? So I wonder if, if Gertrude Stein used that in her Cubist poetry. Last two stanzas um, from Too Much Love of Living. So I, I kind of jumped over a stanza, didn't I? Um, 
I guess about about men that that uh, the strong men that can't escape death, and the great sort of loves that can't escape death as well. I I have no idea where that stanza was. It was quite a good stanza. Um, oh, there we go. Stanza number six, way back, talking about you know though one was strong as seven, he too with death shall dwell. And though one were fair as roses, his beauty clouds and closes, and well though love proposes, in the end it is not well. I missed out that stanza there for some reason, but but that that's reiterated the message throughout. Death is the ultimate victor. Nothing escapes death. Hence why when there's a description of um, Proserpine, who seems to double as Lady Death, uh, even love is, 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 is scared to kiss her. I think as well when 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 she is described during the description of proserpine back to the final two stanzas so a lovely line in in um actually in the tenth stanza as well time stoops to no man's lure i like that one a lot um and time ultimately is death in this poem isn't it time moves on but time and death are just part of each other so stanza number 11, he really sums up his argument here, and it's quite sacrilegious. From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving, whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. Winds somewhere safe to see. And ultimately, just this folding up of things in death. Um, only the sleep in the final stanza and the final words. Only the deep sleep eternal in an eternal night uh so yes he's very much saying death is the end and i think that's is even with the mythology death is it that's it we don't escape death there is no afterlife there is no heaven there is no hell we just sleep we we vanish we are gone oblivion mere oblivion as as uh, shakespeare once put it so in the seven ages of man so yes that's uh, there, there's a summation of the argument going on in the poem, something that, again, really embodies that crisis of faith from Victorian times. It's interesting that, that the crisis of faith manifests itself in these ways. So Swinburne very much on that edge of let, like, let's just cast it all aside. But in other poems, such as Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold, which I'm sure we'll look at at some point, it's very much a different kind of thing where he sees the retreat of faith and faith changing, but but ultimately kind of sees the way forward in human contact. Now, one thing I think that Swinburne is dealing with here within the crisis of faith is that last card that the religious have, perhaps, where they no longer have the, the ultimate description of how life came about. They no longer have this idea of, of, I guess, authority of God, maybe even. But what they can say is that it's, at least it's the promise do you want to leave out as Pascal's wager? I don't know if you know what Pascal's wager is, but Pascal's wager comes from um, Blaise Pascal, who decided it was better to be a Catholic in his terminology because um, the wager is basically it, it, there is either there is either two things: I'm either either there is no God, and therefore I just die and that's it, or there is a God, and I either go to hell forever if I'm wrong, or if I'm right, it's 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 bliss. Now, being that if I'm if sorry, I should say that right, you know, I go to hell forever if I'm wrong about about have you know wrong about it but if i'm right if i change my mind to become a christian then i go to heaven and it's bliss for the rest of for the rest of eternity so he basically puts it out like a wager and he says well ultimately you know which one which one do we go for if you don't believe in god then if you're right 
you sleep, you, you're just dead and that's it. If you're wrong, you, all those nice descriptions of bad things happening to you, I said a little while ago, that's what happens. But if you believe in God and you're right, then um, yay, yay, heaven. woohoo! And if you're wrong, well, you're just dead. And that's the end of it. So ultimately, with these two sides, there is either you know, oblivion or suffering. And then on the other side of it, it's either it's it's a super duper party disco ball blazing within the ethereal sky and nothingness. So obviously, that's the better option between the two. So you might as well go for that one, because ultimately you avoid hell and you still get nothingness if you're wrong. So now there's lots of ways of answering this but and and certainly i think he he you know this idea of he at least is is saying perhaps in this poem how how sleep is more desirable how oblivion is more desirable we'll talk about that when i wander off on one in a minute um but so that's the argument of the poem i think and pascal's wager i won't go into too much detail but lots of people argue against pascal's wager for instance pascal's um practical answer because how can you just believe in something if you don't believe in something you can't just make yourself believe in something and pascal said well you go to mass you go to mass and you you say your prayers you sing your hymns you go through the motions and ultimately you just make your body do all these things that a faithful person will do and make your voice do it and ultimately your thoughts will begin to go with that and uh, your doubt will, will will go and hopefully you will start believing that and then uh, you're fine whereas um here's the point most people that use pascal's wages today are born again christians they'll use that argument so there's one fault right away isn't it which is the assumption that, that the god that you choose is the right one um in the sense that in the sense that ultimately he was a catholic so to these born again christians he might go to hell too because he was slightly wrong you know especially worshiping mary and stuff like that according to them he's off to hell too so they use an example from someone who actually is going to hell in their particular application of that example. And I think that's the way in which they can argue against themselves. Ultimately, you're just shopping around for the best afterlife then or the worst hell. Which one do you go for? You know, Valhalla looks pretty good, but actually the Christian hell, I don't know what the hell is in in, in Viking things. So maybe you don't choose that. Also, you don't become a Hindu because um, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says anyone who worships their God ultimately worships me because I am an aspect of all gods. So I don't I, I won't condemn people with a rubbish um, rebirth if they worship the wrong God, basically, is what Krishna said. So according to Pascal's wager, you were to kind of say, OK, I won't be a Hindu because that's already taken care of whoever else I worship. Anyway, back to this poem. That was all me. That wasn't Swinburne. So, well, me ripping off a few secular thinkers, I guess. Let's look at the form of this poem. It's very self-contained, isn't it? It's very not much. Um, so that's where I find it quite similar. Whereas with the Romantics, uh, there would have been a lot of enjambment. So a line would carry on into the next line and the double pattern. There'd be a lot of effect of that. These lines, these are all quite closed. These lines, aren't they? They're kind of there's a lot of end stopped lines as he would say not a lot of enjambment so and also so they're very self-contained and very neatly contained these um octaves they're written in formally um they're, they're three stress lines so that would make it trimeter and i would say it's sort of between alternates between an anapestic and and an I, and iambic trimeter so um for instance um here uh let's 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 find a typical iambic um line of oh, this there's, there's other aspects of it but so of what may come hereafter 
I would say is an iambic line, whereas I am tired, I am tired, obviously, as an anapest, I am tired of tears and laughter. And there's a few other anapests about. So there's anapest is sort of two unstressed syllables, then a stress syllable, and there and the, and the I am is one unstressed syllable, then a stress syllable. But also some of the lines, especially the um, the sixth, seventh, and eighth lines of each stanza, you might notice use something called well, in an old-fashioned sense, it's called feminine rhymes, in which in which it's the um, the the un the stress syllable and the unstressed syllable at the end of each that line that rhyme with each other, and that's actually sort of a little triplet of rhymes as well that happen sort of near the end of the stanza and it has a particular effect now the actual word um when when there's a rhyme but you add or even when you add an extra unstressed syllable to a line of a certain meter like iambic trimeter and a pestic trimeter but you add that little syllable unstressable after the stress syllable it is called hyper a hypermetric beat there we go. Hypermetric beat. Sounds like a 70s dance craze, doesn't it? But so that's a hypermetric beat when that little extra unstressed syllable is added to the end. So the rhyme scheme, um, it starts off with quite a conventional ABAB rhyme scheme. So quiet seems, riot dreams, and then looking at the first stanza. But then we get this CCC. So we get a triplet of rhymes, growing, sowing, mowing. A triplet of feminine rhymes. So a masculine rhyme, this is very old-fashioned, I know, but this is still the terminology people use. So, for instance, um, in the second stanza, the rhyming of weep, reap and sleep, it's just one unstressed syllable rhyming, whereas hours, flowers and powers, it's sort of an unstressed, uh, sorry, it's one stressed syllable rhyming for weep, reap and sleep, whereas it's, it's, it's th uh, th these unstressed syllables and the stress syllable that precedes them, hours, flowers and powers that rhymes in the sixth, seventh and eighth lines, the endings of them. So what effect does that have? It starts off like a typical, very typical way, ABAB rhyme scheme, which you might find in a, in a Shakespearean sonnet. And so it's very familiar, but it really changes. It's almost like this forestalling. And I think the, the so, so I'm weary of days and hours, blown buds of barren flowers, desires and dreams and powers. This almost this forestalling, this repetition of this rhyme before we have a closure of a full rhyme, um, which is which is again the B rhyme. So the B rhyme from the first four lines of the stanza. So from line two and line four creeps in again at line eight and offers that sense of closure at the end of each stanza. And I think there's a feeling of repetition and hesitation and closure within all of these things. I think the silences between lines and between stanzas is quite pronounced. Things don't sort of flow over as they would in a romantic poem. They're still quite contained. And I think the sort of the extra energy, so that, that hypermetric beat with those final three lines where it's the repeated rhyme and... And the um, hypermetric beat, the unstressed syllable, almost gives that feeling that it's spilling over before it's kind of closed up again. Almost like this sense of, I remember, I, 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 and then, uh, that's, that's the effect. That's my very technical demonstration of how that form works there. So that's, yeah, this repetition of almost this, these souls nearly remembering and then sort of just stopping again and giving up. And, um, and I think the alternation, so actually laughter and hereafter as well are the feminine rhymes. So it's, it is definitely a lot of alternating between 
um, the feminine rhymes which sort of spill over that end stopping a little bit and then just this very much this this boom sort of end stopping that seems to put, put puts an end to all that all that fanciness and all that frivolity i'll have you know thank you very much and I think that's how the form helps the poem. I think the form really works within the poem. Try Me to always have this quite song-like quality, but this almost incompleteness. I mean, the most familiar normally to a song is a is a um, tetrameter, which is a four-stress line, one, two, three, four. It's very much like a four-four beat, but we find in most conventional songs and music. Whereas um, three beats, it's almost like, yeah, I don't know what goes with three beats. There's a... There's a um, there's a waltz going three beat. I can't remember. Anyway, um, I'm out of my depth here with music, I think. I think that's enough about that poem. So I've spoken about the style of it. I've spoken about the argument and I've spoken about how it relates to Victorian themes of, of, of death and the great, the great crisis in faith. So I think it's time because I do have something to talk about here, which I might have spoken about before. But I think it's time now that I've read out the poem to go slightly off the beaten track to certainly leave the pretense at any academic rigour. And it's time for me to summon the very much alive god of wrestling, Ric Flair, to signify that it is time for me to wander off on one. Thank you, Ric Flair. You know what I wanted to talk about? And I have a feeling I've talked, talked, spoken about this while wandering off on one before. And that is, um, uh, I, I'm going to have to do a little PowerPoint, or not PowerPoint, a little, um, just a little document, a little spreadsheet to, to really keep track of all the things I'm wandering off on one about, because I'm sure I'm repeating myself here. I might have done this before, so forgive me if I have. But it's Blade Runner month, isn't it? Twenty November 2019. I haven't watched it yet this month and I want to. So Blade Runner happens in this month. Now, I don't know if you've seen Blade Runner. I don't know if you love Blade Runner. I love Blade Runner. It's one of my favorite films. And I, there's lots of things I love about it. And um, and and so um, I will I will talk a little bit about Blade Runner and just how obviously one big theme in Blade Runner is death and the fear of death. And ultimately, the reason why... Um, all the stuff happens in Blade Runner. The plot is very much led by a group of androids who have, um, they only have, I think it's a four-year lifespan, something like that. And you see, I love this film. I've forgotten the lifespan. It's either a four-year or a seven-year. I'm pretty sure it's a four-year lifespan. And so, because that's how long it takes them to develop emotions. And when they develop emotions, that's it. You can't tell them apart from human beings anymore. So these, these super artificial humans escape from when they're where they're being made to work they arrive on earth which has been abandoned by rich people and the elites mainly and they um they land on they they land on earth and they, they they're finding their makers they're, they're seeking their makers because ultimately they don't they want to get beyond their the ultimate aim is to live longer to go beyond their four year lifespan to develop their emotions and to be be indiscernible from normal humans so they arrive on earth and they're hunted down by deckard who is the blade runner who's played by harrison ford now i've i might have said this before i've said this elsewhere maybe not on a podcast but deckard i think one thing that i will definitely say is deckard while he is the narrator 
while he is the sort of person whose viewpoint most of the action happens within, I don't think he's the hero and I don't think he's the protagonist. He's profoundly unheroic throughout the film. Spoilers are kind of at work here now, so you might just want to skip to the end of it if you want to watch Blade Runner this month during Blade Runner month. So he, he doesn't really do anything heroic. There's the, he, he kind of shoots replicants in the back as they're running away from him he's saved quite a few times as well so he's never like the big old badass guy who kind of kills the baddie and says something smart he's off he's always out of his depth and things aren't really happening because of him he's very much being dragged along and i think the protagonist in that sense the person who makes stuff happen in the film is actually roy batty and roy batty is played by the unfortunately recently departed rutger hauer and it's an unforgettable role but we're very much watching how Roy Batty changes so he is this murderous bad guy but very impressive physical specimen very strong very intelligent and he's on the warpath and he's trying to find his maker and he'll just kill everyone while on the way to do that so in that sense he's the baddie but actually he's quite heroic in his own way and then he finds his maker and his maker ultimately can't do anything to make his life longer and fobs him off with what i call wizard of oz theology just saying stuff like well the brightest of flames burns quickest and you have burned oh so bright be satisfied of your life he's telling him and um and roy batty says there's two versions of it right he says i want more life effer obviously a word beginning with f and ending with er but it's really interesting that in late in the latest version of it, the final cut, he says, I want more death. More, I want more life. He doesn't want more death. <laughs> he wants more life. He says, I want more life, father. And it's quite interesting. It's almost like that the F word isn't that shocking anymore, even though I'm not using it in this podcast. And actually, father has become a more shocking word in that context. So when he's not given life, he ultimately kills him. And I think there's a definite death of death of God parallel going on here turns to god god can't help him so he kills god and it certainly gives it this sort of nietzschean ubermensch quality if you read thus spoke zarathustra by frederick nietzsche he speaks of the superman and he seems like the superman in this sense so um as in the superman is the destination man is just a bridge between the animal and the superman so he's sort of replacing god with a further version of man so he kills God and God is dead is very much like with Nietzsche. It's a very much a sort of refrain of, of thus spoke Zarathustra. But in the end, again, I'm spoiling stuff again. All of the uh, all of the replicants, all of his friends are killed. And it's just Roy Batty and Deckard. And Roy Batty, after a bit of a chase and after a little bit of bit of rough and tumble, he quite easily overpowers Deckard. And there's a point where Deckard is about to fall from a great height and moments before Roy Batty has found one of his friends dead um, one who he seems to be having a romantic relationship with as well and he's already sort of been showing grief when he learns this kind of strange grief that almost becomes grief but finally and this is when he knows because his hands begin to close that he's shutting down because his emotions are coming so he finally he's crying when he finds and he grieves and then this righteous anger overtakes him but ultimately, at the end of the film, he rescues his antagonist, who's meant to be in some ways the hero. But he even questions that. He says, aren't you meant to be the good man? And he lifts him up and he plonks him down next to him. And then he gives this very famous speech about all the things he has seen. And it's how it's all gone now. And you know, it's raining down on him. 
all gone in the sands of time like tears of rain in rain and that's and then he says time to die and he kind of just very graciously bows his head and he's dead and he's holding this dove and he lets go of the dove and the dove is almost like this it flies off into this weird blue sky that hasn't really been seen before and what he seems to be doing it's really interesting because i think it represents a lot of stuff about where humanity is at the moment we're at a point where we have great technology and we're living longer and we seem to want more life and we have these little cults of um, transhumanism i will call them cults i'm sorry guys if you are a transhumanist but it kind of has this early proto-religion quality to it people that, that, that say you don't have to die and technology will remove death and what we find now at the moment actually and actually some of the people involved in this will tell will say the same thing which is human life is being extended we are living longer more and more people are living over 100 more and more people are living into their 80s and 70s but the the diseases of old age these are the things we still get the same old diseases so we live longer but those years can't sometimes aren't always very good the quality of the life in those final years isn't too good and I think he echoes Roy Batty when he says, I want more life, father, or fudger, whatever version you're watching. It's really, um, he kind of, he um, he reminds me of the transhumanists, this sort of vanity of the humans to sort of, to really, to, to gain more life. When ultimately, by the end of it, when he is a more rounded human being, whereas physical and intellectual excellence is suddenly happening within the context of emotion, he accepts death. He He's alive in the moment. And I think that's the lesson that he teaches Deckard. He teaches his enemy to have lived fully, to have lived, to have been alive in the now, to have really been so vitally and intensely and fully present at any point in your life um, is worth far more than living forever and once you have done that the fear of death is gone I think that's what happens with Roy Batty at the end and that's the lesson that he teaches us at the end he was evil perhaps because he didn't understand pain and suffering because he wasn't emotional he was a bit of a psychopath he couldn't quite love he couldn't quite connect with other human beings because our own experience of emotion is very much the seat of our empathy and what happens with Roy Batty is that when it finally all comes together and clicks boom he's there already and in this ultimate presence and empathy he he embraces death he accepts it it's kind of silly it's kind of silly to try and extend your life I think because I'm a supreme human being like Roy Batty that will do. That will do. I love Blade Runner. Have you watched Blade Runner? Did you find Blade Runner boring? Did you like the second one? Did you find that one boring too? I don't know. Answers on a postcard. No prizes. So um, that's it. That's it for this podcast, for this episode of Rusty Sonnets. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I could talk about Blade Runner forever. I could do a Blade Runner podcast quite easily. Maybe I will um, after I've done my James Bond podcast. But thank you for listening. If you want to share this episode, that would be wonderful. Um, and, and there are, there are bonus episodes incoming, I promise, where I will deal with more technical aspects of poetry. I am planning them now, now that I'm actually, I've got a good routine for making these podcasts that I finally have ventured upon. Um, another thing that is coming up from next year, cause we're getting to the end of this year. So I'll, I'll keep your heads up now. I am going to be doing the paradise lost book club for one podcast a month. So there'll be 12 episodes once a month. 
as part of rusty sonnets where i will deal with one book because there's 12 books in paradise lost so i'll deal with one book of paradise lost and you're very welcome to read along with me and i won't be reading the whole poem the whole book even from paradise lost i'll obviously be only quoting some parts and summarizing it and talking about it but that's something that i'm going to do because i think it will be fun it's been a long time since I read. I've taught Paradise Lost and I've taught certain books and chapters, but it's been a long time since I read it from cover to cover. And I'd like to do it slowly over a year. I think it's better to do it that way. And uh, you can do it with me, or you can at least get a blagger's guide to Paradise Lost and pretend that you have. So in the same way that weird tech bro millionaire guys say, I read a book a day. And then you find out that they just read sort of these notes about the book that someone's made for them. You ain't read the book. Pillock so sorry to offend any tech bros there i like tech bros but just not the super rich ones that don't pay tax you can you can do one mate that's what's wrong with me why am i i'm turning into roy batty aren't i i'm turning into this sort of like fight the power replicant so thank you for listening if you want to share it with someone else that's always a really nice favor you can do you can do that by either telling them about the podcast by sharing it on social media or by writing nice reviews wherever you can be it on soundcloud or on itunes um that would be lovely thank you for listening see you next time have a good one bye bye